I'm Nick Harvey Doyle, an Anawan man from the Northern Tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I'm Petra Stock, reporter for The Citizen. Today we're bringing you Samoan journalist Dr Langi Poeva Sherelle Jackson, who is presenting this year's A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism. I'm also joined by Kate Lyons, Pacific Editor for The Guardian Australia. The A.N. Smith is Australia's oldest journalism lecture series. Each year, a leading authority is invited to present on an important aspect of journalism. At this moment in history, what could be more important than covering the effects of climate change in the Pacific and Australia's relationship with the region? Langi Poeva Sherelle Jackson has spent over 20 years reporting on climate change, human rights and culture from an island perspective. She has also studied the way the media has covered the climate crisis in the Pacific Islands as a fellow with the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford. I started by asking Sherelle to briefly describe the region of the Pacific. Well, the Pacific region is made up of three subregions, Polynesia, Micronesia and Melanesia. So it is very diverse culturally and populations differ between, say, Papua New Guinea, Tuvalu and Samoa. So you've got like the higher populated areas with hundreds of languages and then you have Samoa, which has three vernaculars, and then you have Tuvalu, or Niwe, that only has 1,500 people. So it's quite diverse, and I think something that Australians need to know is that it is, Australia is part of the Pacific, and the Pacific Islands are your neighbours. So your A.N. Smith lecture is focused on your work covering climate change in the Pacific, In Australia, we're obviously familiar with heat waves, bushfires, drought conditions and certain types of extreme weather. What are some of the main impacts of climate change being experienced by people in the Pacific? Um, So sea level rise is a long-term impact of the climate crisis. Extreme weather events such as cyclones, flooding um, are also some. Intensification of, say, drought season is also one. Um, And these impacts are not just direct impacts in terms of the extreme weather events, but also impacts to, like, livelihoods, the economies of the Pacific, and, say, access to resources such as water, um, and by way of that, the livelihood options of the Pacific people. I wonder whether the Australian media tends to perpetuate a kind of narrative of Pacific Islanders as victims of climate change rather than fighters. Kate, maybe you can share some of the stories The Guardian has covered which tell a different story, perhaps highlighting some examples of leadership or strength. Yeah, you can't see this, but um, Sherelle is sort of smirking into her hands because yes is the answer um, to whether the Australian media and all international media have yeah portrayed Pacific Islanders as victims. And I, I think that part of the story is this huge grave injustice that is committed against the Pacific, which is that climate change is not 
a phenomenon of the Pacific's making. There are absolutely negligible greenhouse emissions from that region, whatever way you cut the numbers per capita in any way. And so that great injustice of the impacts being felt there so acutely when it isn't a problem they've caused is so unfair. And I think that's maybe what's trying to be captured with the victim um, narrative maybe. But it neglects a very, very important part of the story, which is that many of the things we take for granted in the sort of climate fight come from the Pacific. And there's a long history of Pacific advocacy from Pacific leaders and communities and activists that completely shape the way. I mean, listeners, you know, know about 1.5 degrees warming as a sort of limit where aiming to keep to. The only reason that's in the Paris Agreement is because of Pacific leaders who fought to have that as the the sort of benchmark. There are other issues like loss and damage that we only talk about because Pacific leaders fought so hard for so long. Um, I mean, we're looking right now at Vanuatu, who's seeking an advisory opinion at the International Court of Justice, trying to get a ruling on climate change at The Hague. These are all Pacific-led initiatives and endeavours. And I think, I mean, we've done many stories that seek to highlight that. And it's also something I, on any story in climate change, you would want to make sure that's included in there, including Pacific voices. So yeah, missing that that out is just missing half the story or more than half the story, to be honest. Sherelle, as a journalist based in Samoa, you've been reporting on the Pacific for Australian, New Zealand and international media. How does your reporting and others that are based in in the region differ from the coverage of, say, fly-in, fly-out journalists from Australia? Well, there's a big difference um, because we get to cover the nuances of climate change on the ground. We use our local languages to translate the impacts that people face. So it's very different. Um, And also the way that we understand the context of climate change in our communities is very different to, say, how a parachute journalist would, would perceive it. But there is merit to having a combination of both the local and the international journalists collaborate on on the coverage of climate change. And I feel like that's something we did really well with an impossible choice was that, you know, marrying of the two expertise internationally and local and then benefiting from capturing the stories with local knowledge um, and also local languages while using the expertise of, say, the international sound people that we worked Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, and experts to kind of inform the story from the ground up. I think there's something that is hard for anyone reporting their local community or environment. So like Australians reporting here from their particular communities or subcultures or whatever, when it's the air you breathe, it's sometimes hard to see if it's a story or not. And so very often when I've travelled through the Pacific and I've talked to local Pacific journos and I say, oh, that's an amazing story, they'll be like, is it? Like, is that, <laughs> is that something that people would care about outside of Fiji or Tuvalu or whatever? Yeah. When it's what you live and it's so normal, you know, tragically normal in the case of climate change, sometimes it can be hard to be like, no, that people will care about all over yeah. the world. And so, yeah, that goes not just for Pacific journos but for anyone. Um, and so I think there's a marrying of that 
yeah as well that's a perfect segue to my next question which is about for you Kate as an editor why is it important for the Guardian specific coverage to have local reporters like Sherelle telling these stories and do you face any challenges in doing that it is so hugely important that it's almost like saying like why is a spine important for a human body um it's <laughs> like the whole vision of the Pacific project is that it should be led by Pacific reporters and it's Pacific voices telling Pacific stories. And that's important for many, many reasons that would be obvious to your listeners, like they're there on the ground and COVID hit and no one could fly and fly out to those countries. So the only journalists in Pacific countries were Pacific ones. But it's also things like Sherelle was saying, the, the contacts, the knowledge, the language, the the sort of nuance, the there are there are different approaches when you're interviewing someone in the Pacific to when you're interviewing someone in Australia. Um, there are just lots of reasons why it's so important. Apart from, you know, it just being deeply offensive to think that only Australian journalists um, could do that reporting well. Are there any challenges? I mean, there's so many benefits, but there must be challenges, I guess, covering this massive area. Yes, there are huge challenges. I feel like whenever I go on holidays and one of my colleagues steps in and and sort of fills in for me for a week or so, they always look like they've aged a year when they get back, when I get back. Um, Yes, there are some real logistical challenges, things like travel is very difficult. We had a reporter in Papua New Guinea for our podcast series who was meant to go to a certain set of islands. We'd flown her to Bougainville and she said, the seas are so bad, they say we'll die if we go there. So I'm getting a boat to some other islands. And she's so talented and she could just pivot like that and make the story still amazing. But that happens all the time. Like I've had, I don't know, four, five times reporters filing during cyclones We've had, you know, like a camera breaks on the way to a remote island. There's nowhere to repair or replace that. So you're just stuck. Like, what do you do? And then there's also like, we can't offer full-time jobs to the multiple dozens of reporters we have reporting for us. And very often they do really well with The Guardian. There's a lot of like training and a bit of profile and then they get poached all the time. It happens to me (laughs) all the time. So it's a constant like look on the lookout for new voices and training and yeah, bringing them in and hopefully not losing them too quickly. Sherelle, one for you. On the issue of climate change, tell me honestly, how is Australia viewed by Pacific Island countries and to what extent has this changed or not since the recent federal election? Well, I think it's great that Australia now has a leader who admits that climate change is real. So that's a nice plus. Um, I think that the perspective of the Pacific and Australia is very different to how Australia views itself. I think Australia has a false sense of self-importance in the region and perceives that Pacific Islands somehow place them in a much like more significant role than we actually see, like that leaders see. Um, and I, I've always found that amusing that Australia's like, uh, it's very Australia-centric, like how's Australia in the region? But when you go down to the ground, at least for in Samoa, it's not as significant as, you know, as Australia makes it out to be. Yes, of course, Australian aid um, and bilateral relations with each country is very significant. But at the end of the day, when China comes in and offers something better, the islands take it. The approach that Australia's had with Pacific Islands 
it hasn't necessarily been one that is conducive to the way that Pacific Islands receive or build relationships. It's it's a very westernized approach that is almost confrontational in a way with a lot of terms. Whereas China would come in, you know, we're Asian-based cultures, so the way they approach the Pacific is a lot more friendlier and easier and more palatable for Pacific Islands. So if that answers your question. <laughs> kind of perfect segue into my next question, because I guess here in Australia, reading Australian news, another point of tension for Australia and the Pacific is the role of China. But I'm actually curious to ask both of you what sort of role China has played in terms of climate change. Uh, Okay, so I speak for what I've observed in Samoa and my coverage in Samoa and um, Chinese funded projects do not take into account necessarily environmental and social safeguards, um, whereas Australian projects are very um, intentional about those. So in terms of resilience, um, sustainability, Australian projects tend to take climate change more into account than China-funded ones. In fact, Chinese-funded projects can be quite detrimental to to the environment in Samoa. So in, in that regard, Australia continues to do better in terms of their engagement on the ground on climate. But when it comes down to like domestic responsibilities and emissions, Australia continues to dishonor that kind of presumed familial ties with the Pacific. Yeah, I think that's really key. It's one of the things, often if you ever write about Australia's obligations to the Pacific on climate change, you get all these people on Twitter or in the comment section saying, well, what about China, the world's biggest emitter, blah, blah, blah. And I, sure, I get that. But that misses the point, which is China is not part of the Pacific family and it doesn't claim to be and it doesn't pretend to be, whereas Australia is and regularly claims to be and goes on and on and on about being a brother, a sister to the Pacific. And so, of course, it is more offensive and more harmful when you have a sibling doing harm to extreme existential harm to Pacific countries than having an ally, a development partner doing that. And in fact, what Pacific Island countries often say is, come on, Australia, you're part of the family, lift your game so together we can go to China and say, also lift your game, China. Mm-hmm. That's that's the dynamic as I see it. Do you think that's sort of Yeah, fair? I yeah. mean, that's it's a pretty fair portrayal of, of the issue. It's the hypocrisy really, at the end of the day. I had a climate envoy once say to me from Palau that Australia was like an abusive partner to the Pacific, (laughs) that they would give money that was very needed and welcome and then turn around and deliberately undercut Pacific efforts to reduce emissions and to get the global community to act. And it was a sort of gaslighting that... Yeah, and and essentially Australia's played a key role in, in holding in blocking progress on loss and damage at the UNFCCC. And the way that Australia does it is repackages loss and damage as resilience in the Pacific, and they promote resilience um, in to seem noble when in fact it's distracting. It's like detracting attention from the fact that, hey, you've got responsibilities you need to make up for. What are the key points of tension remaining for Australia on climate change where 
we need to lift our game to be a good member of the family. Um, I would say coal and gas projects, new coal and gas projects are going to be huge. Um, That wasn't something that was talked about at the Pacific Islands Forum this year, which I found quite surprising because it has been talked about so strongly at previous PIFs. And I wonder if it's just the Pacific giving Anthony Albanese some breathing room. But I can't imagine that going down well in future years if Australia continues to open up new coal projects, for instance, like Pacific leaders have said that's totally incompatible with their survival. So, yeah, I mean, domestic policy has to be has to match international expectations, and also Australia has to support Pacific stances at the UN negotiations on climate change, and that is the key stance they have to make is under the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage. They have to actually make progress and support Pacific Islands on admitting (laughs) and making progress on loss and damage negotiations. And it's interesting because at the moment, I actually think Pacific countries have a bit of leverage with Australia in that the Prime Minister Albanese has announced and and is shopping around to other world leaders quite triumphantly that he will be proposing to host a COP summit with Pacific nations. And Without the Pacific nations, it looks pretty odd, maybe, for Australia to be hosting that. And with them, it looks really great for their green credentials. But I can imagine Pacific leaders saying, "Okay, well, we're not going to sign up and be on board with this or give you unless you make some moves. Any final words for maybe young journalists listening to this podcast about how we can do better in covering the Pacific, paying attention to what's happening? So I would encourage uh, future journalists to learn about the Pacific Islands first and foremost. I've worked with so many Australian journalists who are clueless um, and also presume to know more than they, they do. Um, I won't name them right now, but throughout my career, I've come across, you know, some pretty appalling perspectives of the Pacific. And I also urge Australian media leaders to look at placing Indigenous Australian journalists in foreign correspondent roles and in a position where they can report on Pacific Islands because of the similarities in in cultures and communities. I think the way that Australian media can strengthen reporting on Pacific Islands would blaze in bringing Indigenous Australian journalists to do that coverage. I get asked sometimes about this and particularly to non-Pacific Islander, people like myself, white Anglo Aussies who are interested I would say that's great and it's a wonderful beat and it's a great privilege to report on but just go in with as much humility as you can and just listen a lot first yeah and just try to constantly be sort of listening and learning and there are really brilliant reporters in Pacific Nations doing amazing work who've done amazing work for years or decades Yeah, so just read a lot of their work and talk to them and listen and sort of sit with them before you open your mouth. That was Samoan journalist Dr Sherelle Jackson, presenter of this year's A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism, and Kate Lyons, Pacific Editor for The Guardian Australia. Speaking with me, reporter for The Citizen, Petra Stock. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Sherelle and Kate. 
See you next week. <laughs>